0: who are just joining us., uh, this is session one of our study of Samuel. And I have some prepared notes here. Uh, I have about four pages of notes. This is going to be a little bit of an unusual class uh, because we're going to do some background foundation work on this book before we really get into the textual uh, study of it. And the reason for that is, uh, as I'll introduce here in a moment here, the books of Samuel, particularly, carry enormous importance for both Christian and Jewish perspectives, as we all know. The story of the rise of the Davidic kingdom out of the period of the judges forms a critical point of development concerning the worldview of each tradition, such as the concepts of the kingdom of God, ideas about the Mashiach and eschatology. In many ways, Christianity has taken the stories of these texts and has used them to justify its own unique interpretation especially as king david is considered a type and a forerunner of jesus because of this this series is going to have some unique material while the priority perspective of this class is going to be chazal or as we know the sages of israel and their interpretation time will be taken uh, to compare the tradition with the common christian view whenever those views diverge from the jewish testimony in order to provide comparison and contrast and to better understand the tensions which exist between both religions. That's my, uh, my general introduction to this class. I do want to apologize to some of you in advance tonight who don't like to generally dive into the inner workings of the clock. <laughs> Those who like to have a kind of a strictly agotic approach to study uh, might find tonight a little bit tedious. Uh, But this is foundation work. Uh, Tonight, and perhaps part of next week as well, is going to be digging into the the soil and the dirt and laying a foundation, putting up the the cement, putting in the mortar, and creating a structure by which we can can build our, our Hashkafa of this book. Uh, The exciting work of installing the mahogany cabinets and the gold embossed chandeliers comes a little later. Tonight, we're going to be digging a hole. (laughs) So if you could indulge uh, as we go into this, this is a long range project for us to get a really, really good deep dive into this exciting book, uh, uh, which many of us uh, from the time we were little children we're familiar with some of the stories in this book. We're familiar with the stories of, of David and Goliath and Saul and, and the betrayal of Saul and the attempt to try to kill David and all these, all these fantastic stories, whether we're Jewish or Christian or uh, even people from outside the religious world are familiar with some of these narratives that we find in this book. So tonight what we want to do is we want to look at some of the background material Uh, That has uh, laid the foundation for what we have today, as as I sometimes find it necessary to uh, remind people, all of us here in this audience, we're we're pretty much familiar with this idea. But for many people who might watch this on recording, uh, you won't you won't necessarily uh, know this. Let me, uh, Rod, I'm going to put it on speaker view, if that's okay with you. Um, Let me go ahead and do that. So. What we need to know is that we're reading. If we're reading a Bible in English, we are reading a translation. Uh, many people are proud to say that. Well, they're a biblicist. They follow the text. They're not interested in all the commentaries and all the all the Jewish, you know, mumbo jumbo, what have you. They want to stick to the text of the Bible. Well, understand that unless you read Hebrew and Aramaic you are reading a translation of the original. And so when we start dealing with this idea of translations and and the idea of the English inheritance of the Bible, we have to understand that there is an entire discipline of textual analysis that analyzes the the text as it's been handed down to us. And it's prudent for us uh, to be able to at least have a working understanding of how that tradition has been handed down in order for us to properly understand the various interpretations of the text as, as we find in the different traditions of faith. So in, in that in that spirit, I structured this class looking at those different elements. So in this introductory class, we're going to look at various different topics uh, and cover them in, in some, some sort of a flyover technique so that we have a basic working understanding of the different things that we're dealing with. Uh, and the introduction is going to deal with the divisions of the book itself, the proposed authorship of the book, the historical treatment that has been given, uh, the critical tradition in terms of the different issues that critical scholars have approached the book and the things, questions they've asked of it. Uh, we're going to look at the rabbinic testimony, which is uh, a, chi- a chief concern of ours, is what what does Chazal have to say about this book? Well, what is the tradition within the rabbinic Judaism? And then finally, we're going to look at some uh, key critical evaluations uh, of Samuel, uh, kind of an, a, as an overview, uh, some of the thematic elements. Uh, and that's going to carry into next week as well. Some of the thematic elements of Samuel regarding uh, the main topics in the book uh, and how that impacts the tradition uh, that we are studying. So with that all in mind, uh, as an introduction, uh, we're going to look at the first part of that. We're going to look at the at the actual book divisions. You know, we have what was called 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And what we need to know is that according to the Jewish tradition... Uh, and, and it should be known, and I'm going to mention this in the notes, that uh, that the Christian tradition also acknowledges this, that Samuel is meant to be one book. It's meant to be one book. It's not meant to be two books. Uh, there are no separations of the books of Samuel. In fact, in the synagogue readings of the Haftorah portions, if you go to a, a synagogue service, uh, Samuel is not divided into Samuel 1, Samuel 2. So why is it in the English translations that we have, why is it separated out into one and two? Uh, I'm going to adjust my camera here a little bit. There we go. Okay. The reason is because of language. As the Hebrew scriptures were beginning to be translated, and we should know, uh, it wasn't non-Jews that began to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. It was actually the Jews that started to do that. Uh, but when the, when the Hebrew scriptures began to be translated into other languages, there were some translation issues, uh, uh, some linguistic issues that lent itself to a separation and a division of content. Uh, to give some examples as to what we're dealing with here. so in the Septuagint or the LXX, and in the Greek Orthodox tradition, uh, the books of Samuel are known as first and second Kingdoms. In the Vulgate, which is Latin, and, and the Catholic Bible is known as 1st and 2nd Kings, okay? Hebrew Bibles never separated the two, the two divisions at all uh, until an interesting thing happened because we had the Gutenberg uh, press invented back in the uh, 16th century. And in, uh, in 1516, there was a, a Bible edition called the Bomberg edition. It was the first rabbinic Bible published in English. It was published in Venice by Daniel Bomberg in 1516 and then and this was uh it followed the uh, the Christian tradition of separating Samuel into two books and then this was reinforced by the second edition of that uh, Jewish Bible in 1524 which was edited by Jacob Ben Chaim uh, and this format has remained in fashion ever since and so that's really where it started to be uh the, the Jewish testimony started to emulate kind of the Christian format of Samuel and it sounds kind of strange to say that but that's literally what happened. Uh, There was a very very important development in the study of Samuel excuse me which has a huge impact on scholarly uh, research and interpretation of the book and that was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1952 and we're going to go into why that is. Uh, As we go forward in the class, but I just wanted to mention that in the Qumran scrolls, uh, we have a verification of the Jewish testimony that Samuel is considered to be one book because it's one book in Qumran as well. So the book was first separated into two, as I mentioned, by Greek speaking Jews, due to the Greek language, it was originally part of what was called the four books of the kings. Uh, Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, uh, very famous, uh, also utilizes Septuagint and mentions this section of text in his uh, work, Antiquities one. Uh, if you're looking for references there. Therefore, the book divisions appear to be related to translations into Greek and Latin, as I mentioned, uh, which are problems that don't arise in the original languages. Uh, there was no need to, to separate it uh, based on the, on the original language. Now, another point of division uh, that has arisen that scholars point out is that the tradition of ending Samuel uh, part one, where they end it, is based on the tradition uh, of ending a book upon the death of a major figure. Uh, Examples of this is we have the death of Joseph, uh, basically ending the book of uh, Bereshit, Genesis, and we have the book of the death of Moses, Uh, marking the end of the book of Deuteronomy of Devarim. We have the death of Joshua, marking the end of Joshua, which you guys just finished. And of course, we have the death of Saul in that fashion forms the end division point of 1 Samuel. So if you're looking for why it is that 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are divided the way they are, uh, most scholars agree that it's because the death of Samuel happens at the end of the first part. Interestingly also for our purposes is that early Christian commentators such as Eusebius and Jerome, very famous figures in the early church, also acknowledge the Jewish practice of not dividing the book. Uh, this is verified in Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History 625.2. Uh, Again, if you're looking, take notes and have a reference. So that, that's dealing with the division of the book. So when, when we study it, uh, as you might notice, uh, of course, Rod hasn't uploaded it yet, but when this, when this course gets uploaded for native, it's not going to be uploaded with the moniker First Samuel. It's going to be uploaded as Samuel, because we're going to honor the Jewish tradition of, of uh, earmarking this as one book. Because, of course, we're, we are uh, following the Jewish tradition in our studies. So regarding the authorship in uh, the historical treatment and the critical tradition of this book, there's a lot of interesting information that we should know uh, before we start getting into the content of the book itself uh, that I think will help us tremendously uh, in understanding what we're learning. So a main source of critical contention on the origins of the text, and when I say critical contention, I mean among scholars, okay, I'm talking about among scholars, is that there are vast differences between the Masoretic text, the MT, I'll call, and the LXX of the Septuagint. Uh, The Masoretic text is very short and spotty. And in this particular case, in the case of Samuel, the Masoretic text has many problems with it uh, that are related to translation and copyist errors, which sounds heretical. But in fact, there's a lot of uh, omissions in the Masoretic text that leave a lot of stories, uh, big holes in them. Uh, that we uh, regarding what we currently have in the book, whereas the LXX, the Septuagint, is very expansive, and seems to have many elaborations. Now, this is interesting, and the reason why I bring this up is because in scholarly tradition, uh, this was a major source of debate for many, many centuries, uh, especially in recent centuries, uh, and that wasn't really uh, going in a positive direction regarding the the. Uh, uh, the real unearthing of the origins of the book, it was really the Dead Sea Scrolls being discovered that really opened the doors for the scholars to begin uh, to piece this together. Uh, I'll I'll tell you why uh, here as we go through this information. So the Masoretic text from the received Hebrew tradition is considered by most scholars to be in poor repair, this particular book. This is first officially noted in 1634 by Hebraist uh, Louis Capel. Uh, these problems uh, in that context are only rectified, meaning you can only make a cohesive narrative of Samuel by taking the Masoretic text and using large portions of the Septuagint to fill in the blanks, so to speak. And that's what scholars always did. So the many distinctive readings of Septuagint with its expansive and robust additions seem to suggest a divergent Hebrew original. So before the Dead Sea Scrolls were were discovered in other words uh because most scholars will follow the the uh they'll try to follow the plumb line back to the original many scholars were very suspicious of the Septuagint's rendering of Samuel because it diverged it it diverged so greatly away from the Masoretic uh text so the the Septuagint was losing credibility rapidly uh, because people were looking at the, at the Masoretic text, and they were saying, well, this is the original story, and all this stuff in the Septuagint's not in it. So therefore, the assumption was that a lot of this extra stuff was being added in by the Christians for their own purposes. You can understand where that would be a, a theological problem. And this was really the prevailing uh, attitude all the way up into the late 1940s. And of course, when this, when those Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the early 1950s, uh, it was a bombshell that went off because they found all these scrolls. And one of the scrolls that they found, of course, in cave four was a complete scroll of Samuel. And we'll get into this a little bit more uh, as we go forward and why that was significant. Uh, but on a couple of other notes I wanted to mention, well, I'll just, I'll just mention K4 Qumran had a uh, complete scroll of Samuel. Uh, and I'll just say it because I have it on your mind right now rather than jumping back and forth that the Qumran scrolls uh, actually had a closer resemblance to the Septuagint version of Samuel than to the Masoretic text, which was very surprising to the scholars. Uh, so, what that meant was that, this, that, that, that the, the Septuagint was actually more original in some respects than what was carried down through the Masoretic, which was very surprising to them. But it did solve a lot of problems that they were having in terms of their uh, reconstruction of the book. Um, Interestingly, related to this topic, around 300 common era, uh, church father uh, Lewison, I think that's how you say it, uh, attempted to bring the older Septuagint into closer conformity with the Hebrew original texts, and he created what's now known by scholars as the third strata of the Septuagint. Uh, and, and it's considered authentic in large part because it's very consistent with the writings of Josephus in the first century. Uh, so because Josephus' language and and uh, and the way he writes about these issues in uh, in his writings in the first century seems to be consistent with the three, 300 Common Era redaction, uh, it, it, it's tended to believe that that what the Lucian, Louis, I guess, uh, uh, redaction actually brought it closer to the original Jewish text, and that's why I mentioned that to you. <clears throat> What's interesting as well is that you'll you'll commonly have. And this is where the trouble comes in for us. We have to be honest with our study of this, but we also have to be cognizant of the many uh, controversies which have uh, railed against the Jewish people through the centuries. And many anti-Semites or anti-Semitic commentators have tried to discredit the Masoretic tradition. uh, Whereas many people who study from a Hebraic perspective uh, are very fond to defend the Masoretic tradition because we understand the uh, the tradition of interpretation and transmission, the old transmission within the Jewish world. Uh, however, we can't be myopic and think that uh, that it's impossible for human beings to make mistakes. Uh, so just because we are partial to the Jewish rendering of the Masoretic text doesn't mean necessarily from a textual analysis standpoint that it's perfect and can't and can't have errors. Uh, we have to have enough faith in God that we can trust that he can overcome the mistakes of scribes. Uh, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people sometimes struggle with. But as a result of this, this, this issue, especially among Biblicists, uh, people will look at the book of Samuel in particular as a way to undermine the Jewish claim of an authority of transmission. Uh, However, uh, for various different reasons, uh, in my own humble opinion, I believe that those criticisms are unfounded. Uh, But I just wanted to mention that. So uh, another interesting point uh, regarding the historical treatment of Samuel is that because the Septuagint traditionally uh, or always arranged books, I should say, chronologically, uh, Christian Bibles follow suit. And they tend to place first and second Samuel after Ruth, of course, Ruth being the story of the progeny of King David. However, in Hebrew Bibles, as many of you know, uh, Samuel are the third and fourth books of the former prophets and are positioned immediately after Judges. Uh, The books are anonymous in terms of authorship and technicality, meaning we, we don't have a superscription that proves their authorship. Uh, however, the Jewish tradition is quite firm on this topic. We're going to look at that a little bit later about what the Jewish tradition actually says about the authorship of these books. Uh, it's very interesting. We actually have a little passage in the Talmud. So, explicit. Uh, this is interesting as well, and I think this is something that really uh, we should focus in on. Explicit textual evidence in Second Samuel one eighteen. Tells us of at least one pre-existent source for the Book of Samuel, the Book of Joshua. It's mentioned. Uh, in fact, those of you who went through Joshua will remember this as well. Uh, First Chronicles also suggests four additional sources. We have the Court of Records of King David, as found in First Chronicles twenty-seven twenty-four. We have Samuel the Seer in twenty-nine twenty-nine, and also in that same verse we have the records of Nathan the Prophet, the records of Gad the Seer. And then of course, Jasher was also mentioned in the book of Joshua in chapter 10. So we definitely have some original sources within the Jewish world that seem to be informing uh, a lot of the narrative within this book. Most scholars believe that many core elements of the book were recorded during the reigns of David and Solomon and were later pieced together with developing perspectives near or later than the sixth century Uh, B.C., which is very, very interesting, uh, because as we're going to see later in the study, uh, this, this interplays with some of the critical scholarship on the book. So one of the things that I find exciting in my study of Samuel is that a lot of times you'll have a high critical scholarship, which tends to come from a faithless perspective that will sometimes inadvertently Uh, have insights that actually benefit the community of faith and our understanding of our own tradition. Uh, We're going to see some of that uh, tonight. And uh, on that note, I'm going to step now into the next part, which is the critical tradition, the critical tradition of the study of the book. How's everybody doing? Am I I blowing everybody? Are, Are you all okay? All right, this is kind of technical, so I don't want to move too fast, but... In the critical tradition, there's a theory that some of you may or may not have heard, uh, which is very prevalent uh, in modern scholarship. It's almost to the point of being assumed uh, by most scholars. In other words, if you're not if you're if you're a biblical scholar and you're writing on this book and you're commentating on on Samuel and other books in this in this period of uh, this passage of text as part of the of the Tanakh, if you're not familiar with this theory, you won't be taken seriously. I'll just say it that way. And that's the Deuteronomic theory okay the deuteronomic theory uh, is a theory that's espoused by modern critical scholars which embraces the concept of what's called a deuteronomic tradition which assumes that deuteronomy through second kings is a literary unity that is produced by a single group of authors with a very specific perspective which is known as the deuteronomic editors and what is this perspective basically it interprets the developing history of Israel through the lens of Deuteronomy, specifically uh, the Anchor Bible Commentary, which is a commentary that I'll be referring to at various points in this in this study series, uh, which is a kind of a uh, is considered the gold standard of of modern critical uh, studies of the book. Uh, in that in that commentary, uh, P. Kyle McCarter states that this editorial perspective. Uh, in his words, stressed the centralization of worship in Jerusalem, the obedience to the Deuteronomic law, and the avoidance of any kind of apostasy, all according to a rigid system of reward and punishment. That's the Deuteronomic view. Now, just in that statement, you can see the overloaded theological implications with that perspective. It's got a very highly bloated Christian view of uh of a a jewish tradition of extreme justice of reward and punishment uh this is some of the same ground that uh famous scholar e.p sanders uh wrestled with uh in uh, many years ago e.p sanders uh posited the concept of covenantal nomism which is the idea that the jews are already in a covenant of grace through this for the aspect of covenant uh, which kind of blows apart the entire Christian narrative that uh, that if you don't keep the law perfectly, that you'll be damned to hell for eternity, and therefore you need a savior who forgives your sin. So the Deuteronomic theory, <coughs> in some respects, uh, comes at the Jewish tradition kind of uh, in an infantile basis, if I can say that uh, of my own volition. Uh, however, it does make some very interesting Uh, insights into into the text itself which is why i'm mentioning it and also i'll say that uh, we should really be familiar with this because this this is a theory that's informing a lot of critical scholars views and if we don't take the time to at least be aware if not intimately familiar with the arguments of people who are undermining faith it's very difficult to defend faith uh, when you're faced with these arguments so basically the high critical method assumes that the text was constantly redacted to reflect a later monolithic view of the trajectory of the faith and of the people as a whole. Understand that the Deuteronomic position uh, carries with it the, uh, the further assumption that the Jewish people never, never, exiled, never were exiled from Egypt and traveled across the Red Sea to capture a land that was occupied by others. Uh, The critical position is that Israel already was the Canaanites and that they developed out of Canaan. And so the Deuteronomic position assumes that there was simply a formalization uh, of of an ancient Canaanite cult that was reformed uh, and created into what we know as the Hebrews. in other words, they don't believe in the whole story of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and all that stuff. So we should know that. That's something that we should be aware of as we as we engage with these theories. We should understand what the perspective is and where they're coming from. Now, interestingly, back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, did I skip a page here? Um, nope, I didn't. Just making sure I didn't miss any material here. Most modern Christian scholarship on Samuel assumes, and you might be surprised by this, but they assume that the Masoretic text is the earlier and more original reading. I'm talking about Christian scholars now. I'm not talking about your average Christian who probably doesn't even know what the Masoretic text is. I'm talking about scholars who are Christian scholars who look at this book. But in contrast to that, uh, well, not necessarily in contrast to that point, but, uh, but just in contrast to positions of faith, most critics of the Bible or of Jewish claims. Now, what is the Jewish claim that is shared in the Orthodox world is that the oral tradition, as well as the written tradition, was handed down from Moshe from Sinai, right? It passed down to Joshua, carried down through the sages. That's what we're taught what I would call the plumb line to Moses from today back to that time. Um, So we we have to understand that that's our perspective. Our perspective is that the tradition goes back all the way to Moses. Most critical scholars uh, don't believe that. Most critical scholars today believe that Moses never existed and that he was an invented figure of the hebrews to try to create a tradition that was somehow going to separate them from their pagan environs that they had come from that they, they they were from this people but they no longer wanted to be identified with this people and so they they created a tradition uh and i'll give you a quote here that uh that supports what i'm telling you this is coming from the new american commentary uh history of ancient quoting another book called the history of ancient palestine It says this, the quote is that the basic assumption of non-evangelical biblical scholars is that the biblical writers exercise the right to create narrative dialogue and perhaps to create much more than that. To quote uh, scholar Alstrom, religious historiography does not per se need to be built upon any reality because religion makes its own reality. So understand this is the mindset that You create your religious texts out of the imagination that you want to create a certain worldview, and so you invent the text to support the story of the dogmas that you want to promote. So you need to have a story that promotes the idea of a single king over Israel. So in this book, Samuel, we're going to see the story, according to that perspective, of how it is that this man David was raised up over all the inept, the inept, and fallible rulers that came before and he was risen up as the example of what god wanted and that now becomes the uh the gold standard to use that phrase again for what israel is supposed to strive after uh, ever since uh that's that's the critical view okay we don't have such a cynical view or critical view of that we believe actually what god has told us uh through his revelation but it's again incumbent upon us to be uh, aware of these arguments and, and the logic behind them. So at the root of the Deuteronomic perspective, uh, to finish up on that topic, is the secularist assumption, as I mentioned already, that Judaism was nothing more than a progressive reformation of the ancient Canaanite Baal worship. This might be shocking to you, but most critical scholars believe that uh, that Hashem, is a repurposed version of Baal. That's what scholars say, which is a position, of course, which is not only rejected by Judaism, it's also rejected by Christianity and Islam, interestingly. Uh, But it is assumed as true by most atheist scholars, and many critical scholars are atheists, you should know that. It is very important for people of faith to be able, and I'm going to read my note here so I don't ad lib. It is very important for people of faith to be able to understand or to at least be aware of the perspectives within the scholarly world in order to properly understand how these views interact with a faith-based perspective. However, the perspective is still of use, as I mentioned already, to those who adhere to the traditional orthodox view of scripture as there are insights which often prove valuable. One such insight is the possibility that Samuel and Kings is overwritten from a post-exilic perspective. So here's an insight. that what, what So you might say, well, what, what can critical scholarship offer us that is of any value? Well, here's, here's an insight that they have offered that is of value to us, is the possibility that the final redaction of Samuel, as has been passed down to us, is written from a post-exilic perspective. That's very important to know. Because how would our perspective change if Israel has a king that's raised up and then the kingdom is destroyed and they are put into exile, as Jeremiah prophesied, and we know from history happened, how are the Jewish people then to to form a context for themselves in order to understand what happened to their nation? What happened to the promises of God? Excuse me, I need some tea. What happened to the promises of God that David's kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom when the kingdom is destroyed and they're put in exile? How, if you're a Jew and you find yourself in Babylon, away from your land, how do you put this in context? And so these are the kind of questions that not only critical scholars, but many Jews have wrestled with. And so it's very plausible to think that, As the tradition developed and as the story was passed down from generation to generation, certain aspects ended up being highlighted through divine inspiration uh, that encouraged the people to continue to cling to certain promises at the expense of maybe some other parts of the story that weren't necessarily as relevant as the the nation progressed. I'm just throwing that out there. So what does the rabbinic tradition say about it? We want to know. Okay, well, you've spent a half an hour to 40 minutes talking about all these critical scholars and what they have to say about it. What do the sages have to say about it? Well, I'm going to let you know. So there's a particular passage in the Talmud uh, that deals specifically with the authorship of the prophetical books. And I'm going to read that to you right now, uh, not as an entirety, but uh, but in uh, in part. So if we go to the Talmud, and I read from the uh, Steinsall's uh, edition, which has the commentary worked in with the text. And we go to Baba Batra, beginning at 14b, in the Gemara, it says that the sages taught that the order of the books of the prophets, when they are attached together, is as follows. Uh, Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and Isaiah and the 12 prophets. The Gemara asks, consider... Hosea preceded some of the other prophets whose books are included in the Bible. As it is written, the Lord spoke first to Hosea, Hosea 1-2. Excuse me. At first glance, this verse is difficult. But did God speak first with Hosea and not with any other prophet before him? This is what the Gemara asks. Weren't there many prophets between Moses and Hosea? And Rabbi Yochanan says, he was the first of four prophets who prophesied in that period, and they were Hosea and Isaiah and Amos and Micah. Accordingly, Hosea preceded those three prophets, and the book of Hosea as well should precede the books of those prophets. The Gemara answers, since this proph- his prophecy is written together with those of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, in one book of the 12 prophets, and Haggai. And Zechariah and Malachi were the last of the three prophets. He is counted with them. The Gemara inquires, but let the book of Hosea be written separately and let it precede the others. The Gemara answers, were it written separately, since it is small, it would be lost. The Gemara further asks, consider Isaiah preceded Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Let the book of Isaiah precede the books of those other prophets. The Gemara answers, since the book of Kings ends with the destruction of the temple and the book of Jeremiah deals entirely with the prophecies of the destruction and the book of Ezekiel begins with the destruction of the temple but ends with consolation in the rebuilding of the temple and Isaiah deals entirely with consolation as most of his prophecies refer to the redemption we juxtapose destruction to destruction and consolation to consolation This accounts for the order, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, which is different than what the Christian Bible has it. And then finally, it says the Beretta now considers the authors of the biblical books. And who wrote the books of the Bible? Moses wrote his own book, the Torah, and the portion of Balaam in the Torah, and the book of Job. So it says right here in the Talmud that Moses wrote the book of Job. Joshua wrote his own book and eight verses in the Torah which described the death of Moses. Samuel wrote his own book and the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. So in the Jewish tradition, Samuel is the principal author of Samuel. It also gives some credit, as I mentioned already, to those earlier sources, uh, Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet. So that's in the Jewish tradition. So when we when we want to know what what is the authoritative tradition, tell us, it tells us that Samuel wrote the book of Samuel. Okay. That's important for us to understand. Where was I here? Did I read that already? Oh, yeah. I didn't read this last part. It is stated in Ber- Bereda that Joshua wrote his own book. The Gemara asked, but isn't it written towards the end of the book? And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. Joshua twenty four twenty nine. Is it possible that Joshua wrote this? The Gemara answers, Aaron's son Eleazar completed it. The Gemara asks, but isn't it also written and Eleazar son of Aaron died, Joshua 24, 33. The Gemara answers, uh, Phinehas completed it. And it is also stated in the Beretta that Samuel wrote his own book. So it's, re- it's recapitulating this. The Gemara asks, but isn't it written and Samuel died, 1 Samuel 28, 3. The Gemara answers, Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet finished it. So that's the final part of that, which tells us what the sages have to say about that, which is very interesting. So let's see, where was I here? Got to find my notes again. Any comments or or questions or anything? Uh, Just as a pause right here. Anybody have anything they want to share before I conclude here? Well, I do. I had the question, but I'll, I'll think of it here in just a minute. Sure, that's one. <laughs> oh, while you're thinking about it, Ross, uh, I have this friend. Uh, a perfect example of this without going on a rabbit trail uh, you know, is this, is the famous story of when David sneaks up behind Saul in the cave in which he was hiding, and he finds Saul with his uh, his cloak is dropped and he's going to the bathroom at the foot of the cave and his and david's men is behind him encouraging him to kill him you got him you got him dead to rights kill him. and what does david do david doesn't kill him but he cuts off one of the seat from his cloak and he holds it up before him before his men and he says look what i did i spared your life it's a very famous scene uh you know a scholar will look at that from a dispassionate Critical lens and say why is this being highlighted? You know what what is really being told here to the people of Israel uh, by this story? And of course, that's not inconsistent with how the sages look at it. The sages look at the story and they look into the remez, they look into the midrash, they look into the sod, and they and they and they they evolve a, a, a tremendous narrative out of the pishat, uh that that informs the nation. Uh, of what they are to think about their own their own tradition, and that's exactly right, Ross and this that's it's very important I think Samuel in particular, uh, because it's such a literally a literary uh, beautiful book. Uh, it's got so much uh, memorable narrative in it. It's not like the Book of Numbers that has this droning on story. Uh, Samuel's a very, uh, a very easy book to share. It's got a lot of stories in it that you can tell children that you can reframe, and and it's just story. It's it's just a beautiful book. And so, therefore, what, what what's with the stories? You know, why do we have all these stories? And that's one of the questions that we ask. So that's right. So, anyways, let me go on here so we don't go super long. Um, Again, in the rabbinic tradition, uh, Chazal states that all the authors of the book of Samuel were prophets and that they wrote the details based upon divine revelation. So we should know that that's what the sages say so when somebody says well how can they know the details of this conversation of david in the cave was, was somebody sitting in the cave there with with a stenographer sheet and he was writing down shorthand as david had this you know that that's a critics our question right but the answer of course is that uh, the prophets were given the inspiration of what to write okay so we uh, we have to wrestle that out in our own mind you know is that what we believe is that what we feel like we need to believe or or, or is the story itself sufficient for us. I think, you know, we're going to take the traditional Orthodox view on this. We're going to take the view that the the tradition has been passed down. At the time, uh, an interesting point of reference that uh, some of you may or may not be aware of, that at the beginning of the story of Samuel, the tabernacle is not in Jerusalem, but it's in Shiloh. It's in Shiloh. This is really important. The, The temple in Jerusalem has not been built yet at the time of the beginning of the story of Samuel. Uh, it's obvious if we look at the timeline, but we may not be thinking that as we read it. After Shiloh, it was in Nob for thirteen years, and then it was seven years in Gibeon. And then finally David moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem. Uh, and of course it was his son that built the first temple. We know that. So let's let's round the turn here to the final leg of our of our journey tonight. We'll finish up with some uh, critical evaluations. Uh, that have been wrestled with over the centuries uh, for us to think about as we go into next week, uh, and then we can go into some discussion time after the recording. So some critical evaluations. One of the things that I find interesting, and this is just my own observation, actually, is that it's somewhat unnerving that the best versions of Samuel, which exist to us in our language, exist uh, from our language, uh, came from Greek, Latin, uh, or old Greek, and are formed by Christian redactors, particularly origin <laughs> origin you know of all people. Um, this version is primarily what most Bible readers use today is the Christian redaction by origin that's been passed down. Uh, this there is an earlier, more uniformly Jewish source for Samuel, and that's the Targum Jonathan, which is an Aramaic. Most textual critics dismiss the Targum Jonathan as being of historical value, however, in terms of finding the original form of Samuel, since the version handed down was later redacted and changed to form a more close resemblance to the Masoretic text, which we already covered has lots of scribal transmission problems in the book of Samuel. So once again, we're back full circle to having to rely upon the Dead Sea Scrolls thank God that those were discovered, uh, to be able to reconcile those texts. <clears throat> so anyways, that was just something I thought you would find of interest. Uh, the structure of the book, as I already mentioned, indicates that there are a variety of sources to the material. And this goes back to you know the comment that you made, Ross, that uh, it shouldn't be discouraging to us to think that that the narrative of Samuel was, was constructed in its final form much later than the events that it's describing uh, because even the text itself of, of the uh, Tanakh indicate that this is the reality. Um, so it probably wasn't one author that finally compiled the book. Uh, that's not inconsistent with what the sages are saying. The sages are telling us that Samuel is the principal inspired author of the narrative. Uh, that's, that's okay for us to think that that there were other people who came in as stewards and uh and and stewarded the text as it came down to them uh at least in my view that's not a contradiction so we have this uh this comment from again from mccarter in the anchor commentary who says that one of the struggles that scholars have had is that there is a consistent uh element of competing themes within the book, which are awkward to reconcile from a simple observation. And I just give a quick example. He says the figure of Samuel dominates the first three chapters and then vanishes suddenly and then comes back uh, only in chapter seven after disappearing from chapters four through six. <coughs> More troublesome in chapter eight, kingship is depicted as being offensive to Hashem. Well, in chapters 9 through 10, the first king is actually anointed at Hashem's command. Now, we've been told what to think about that. But at what the point that the uh, commentator is making is that at first blush, without the rabbinic commentary to add context, you might think, well, if God says that you don't need any king but me, why is he then anointing a king? That's not me this is a question that right if you're teaching a sunday school class in church and you have a little 10-year-old kid and he says why did god raise up a king if he said he didn't want a king right this is the kind of a question a kid would ask like because they, they don't they don't know the orthodox answer to the question they don't know what you're supposed to say they just know what the text suggests right and this is one of the things that scholars do is they ask these kind of nervy questions <clears throat> so moving on it says one of the major themes of the book of samuel is the elevation of the Davidic line, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, over what is portrayed as the corrupt leadership which preceded him. In spite of textual evidence, and this is important, in fact, more than the Christian commentary, we're going to find this, this is a fascinating aspect, one of the divergences between the Christian and Jewish testimonies on, on this book is the Christians are much more likely to to smooth over David's faults and to denigrate Saul uniformly. Whereas the Jewish tradition, believe it or not, makes many, many excuses for Saul and highlights his many attributes as well as his faults and also elevates David in spite of his faults. But you find that the Jewish commentators are far more honest, I feel, uh, about the story and the and the faults of the people involved than the Christian commentators, which I think is very revealing. And I'm just commentating on my own volition here. Uh, I think it's very revealing of one of the major differences between the two religious traditions. Because in Judaism, uh, Judaism is probably the only major religion that invites you to argue with it. Uh, let's, let's sit down and drosh this out. Let's figure this out. Let's discuss it. Uh, the sages of the Gemara are constantly drilling into the fine points, you know, not, not insulting one another's opinions, but challenging one another uh, to, to dig deeper and to, and to, and to find the real, uh, the real halakha that can be found in the story. Uh, whereas Christianity has, uh, and I don't want to whitewash it in this way, but in many respects, Christianity uses the stories of Samuel to justify its dogma about the person called Jesus. And so in in any respect where David is is a is a prototype for the coming messianic king uh whatever sins David commits you find in Christian commentators are all evidences of a man with the grace of God showering over him uh giving him forgiveness for his faults which should be an encouragement to all of us who are all sinners saved by grace whereas in the Jewish tradition uh, you find many commentators look at the problems of David's behavior head on without blinking. Uh, they don't necessarily make excuses for what he does, although they do give context uh, regarding the nation and in its, in its response. Uh, it's a much more subtle uh, approach to the problem. And so we're going to see that. There's, there's some rich Jewish commentaries we're going to dive into as we get into the text uh, that deal with um, with these uh, with these issues, uh, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's really fascinating. So, again, just to wrap up here, so we don't get too long. Uh, the, a lot of the book deals with Samuel uh, uh, anointing David uh, as a replacement for the corrupt leadership which preceded him, and where was I here? What we find is that David ends up being the victor in all cases. Uh, When things could go either way, uh, and looks pretty pretty rough in the field for him. David always manages to prevail, and we find that it's his line which endures, and uh, the line of Saul perishes. This is very significant for us to understand, both from a Jewish or a Christian perspective. Uh, It does seem, as we wrap up here, that Saul's basic ultimate function in the book is to create a foil for the emerging greatness of King David. Uh, Even the description of Saul as a king, and consider this language if you've never thought about before, the the language of Saul being a king, such as all the other nations have, suggests that he's just an everyman. He's nothing special about Saul. The idea then, therefore, is that he's a king which is unfit to lead the Israelites, who are God's chosen people. Uh, Here's a direct quote. Again, this is from the New American Commentary by a Jew named Bergen. This is from page 36. It says, being noted uh, genealogically as a member of the most spiritually degraded tribe in Israel. You ever thought about it that way? That Benjamin is the most spiritually degraded tribe of Israel. Think about the book of Judges and what goes on in there. Uh, see Judges and also see first Samuel 9, 1 Samuel 9.1. We're going to see that. <laughs> Excuse me. The, Saul is, the, is first presented as being tall which is a trait used elsewhere in the Tanakh only to describe non-covenant people. Think about it as the Israelites were getting ready to go into the promised land. They, what are they? How do they describe the, the, the inhabitants of the land, right? They were huge. They're intimidating. So Saul's presented as being like them, okay? The first Saul story that we read, the narrative that we read first about him that describes him, depicts him as an incompetent shepherd. Now compare that to David, right? David is the, David is the good shepherd who he leaves the 99, right? To go to the, get the one as we read about in the Christian text, right? Uh, but Saul is an incompetent shepherd. He's one that's so inept that over a period of days, he cannot even find a pack of donkeys, let alone sheep uh, that strayed from home. 1 Samuel 9, 3. Saul is spiritually dark. He has to be told that Samuel, the most famous spiritual leader since Moses, lives nearby and can help him. He does not recognize the prophet and judge when he actually sees him. And he actually thinks he has to pay him to receive insight from him. Uh, You read this in 1 Samuel 9, 6 through 19, through necromancy. So Saul believes he has to use necromancy to pay for Samuel's services. This is a very denigrating vision of a future Israeli king. He also, among all the kings of Israel and Judah, is the only one described as being periodically under the influence of an evil spirit. When you think about some of the sins of some of Israel's kings, uh, you think about Manasseh. You know you know all the horrible things that Manasseh did. he was never described as having an evil spirit. Saul was described as having an evil spirit. You find this in first Samuel sixteen verses fourteen and twenty three and in verse eight as excuse me chapter eighteen verses verse ten and chapter nineteen verse nine so et cetera and so forth. we could go on. there's about a dozen more uh comparisons we could make, but for the sake of time, I'll move on <clears throat> and and this of course includes now we want to put into the into the record of saul's career he made two attempts at murdering his own son and 16 recorded attempts at killing david additionally what we find in the text of samuel which scholars have pointed out is that many of the astounding accomplishments of saul which he did have some and saul did accomplish some mighty things which can be discerned you have to kind of read between the story a little bit sometimes But nonetheless, Saul's accomplishments are minimized and almost dismissed in Samuel as ancillary while David's accomplishments are almost hyperbolically exaggerated in some cases. So even though the Jewish tradition uh, is balanced in its uh, its evaluation of these two men, uh, certainly in the text, uh, we are left with the impression that Saul was basically a Rasha and David was a Zodic. That's That's how we're left with the impression. Um, so comparing Saul with David, David's life, uh, again, quoting the New American Commentary, it says he was a literary hologram of the history and destiny of Israel. That's an interesting statement, a literary hologram of the history and destiny of Israel. So we see, therefore, that the majority of First and Second Samuel are dealing either overtly or indirectly with David's displacement of Saul and his male ears on the throne uh, of Israel. And in summary, the Chazal have many teachings on Samuel, most of which are Midrashic. So we should understand that there's a lot of Midrash on this book, such as the Midrash Samuel. Uh, secondarily, we have the Yakut Shimoni, which is another Midrash uh, that covers this book. In this course, I'm going to seek to provide a balanced and thorough analysis uh, with the help of you guys uh we'll we'll drash this out together with the jewish testimony being the authoritative interpretation while also recognizing the theological and historical significance of the book to both jews and christians so that's that's introduction that's session one on samuel Uh, next week we'll finish the introduction and actually dive into text so uh appreciate you guys being on Uh, we can stick around uh for those of you who want to chat for a bit uh off the recording um, and I'll leave it up to Rod. He can start to stop the recording, whatever he wants. But now, David, I had a, a, a question and an sure. observation.